Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Astronomy is likely the single biggest topic we've tackled on this show to date. We're going to be touching briefly on topics like science, religion, myth, architecture, and more spanning thousands of years. But at the center of all of it is a really important unifying theme, that all of us look up at the night sky. It sounds a bit cheesy, but it's true. Wondering at the stars is a universal human trait, and the conclusions we've come to over our history says a lot about each period we're going to touch on. So with that in mind... Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Kevin Miller. Hey. And uh, we're going to do our, our real episode now on uh, on astronomy. Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> A real thing. This is this is the weirdest thing I do with this podcast, I think. I mean, not not astronomy, but the, the April Fool's episode. I love the April Fool's episode. The April Fool's episode was your idea originally. Uh, well, okay. Yeah, toot my own horn. I love it. I did it. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a cool idea that I could float past you and not actually have to do any work on until today. And now I understand the full gravity of it. Yeah, we got a long recording session going on here. So if you hate the uh, if you hate the April Fool's episode, come at uh, me. M- Miller's email address is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I say a lot of offensive things on the internet. So come at me at the crossover <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. You've been on the crossover podcast a lot lately. Shout out to uh, Matt Pierce. Yep. <laughs> uh, he definitely wants to get on this show, but uh, we'll get back on topic here. <laughs> It'll happen sometime. No, we, we need to talk about astronomy because we've been recording for a very long time and have a very long time left. Yep. Astronomy is one of those things that we don't really have like a firm beginning point on for very very obvious reasons because mostly it's just staring at stars yep there's the sky (laughs) and uh and we refine over time but like literally our 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 records of people looking at the sky and recording what they see in the sky go back so far that uh it's just completely outside the purview of history i mean we have bones that are 35,000 years old with markings on them that we're 99 percent sure are, are tracking the phases of the moon huh that's 30, 35,000 years. This is uh, an era where we're just figuring out how farms work. Like, this is this is a very long time. Yeah, I guess it's strictly a timekeeping mechanic at that point, right? <sighs> yes and no. I mean, the early history of astronomy is really tangled up in a number of different disciplines. Because, yes, there's timekeeping, but because it's cyclical, it also allows you to do some very simple predictive work which is important in that, you know, if you're a farmer and, and you, you know well enough how to track 
the sky, uh, you can more accurately figure out when is the best time to plant your crops and things right. like that. Or you know when winter is coming and it's time to harvest. Yeah. But so you've got a lunar cycle that lasts roughly a month. Mm-hmm. And so you know, okay, so we're going to have... It's going to be winter for three of these cycles, and then maybe after that, it's going to be good enough time to start planting. Exactly. And then we have about eight more cycles until we have to worry about stopping planting for a while. Right. But there's also uh, kind of a mix-up between cause and effect there, Mm -hmm. which is that, well, maybe when these things happen in the sky, it causes that to happen because we are are talking about thousands and thousands of years ago, and we don't necessarily know a whole lot about, you know... uh, elliptical orbits or the tilt of the earth's axis or atmospheric dynamics things like that that are you know very complicated and we kind of take for granted now but oh, sure then it's you didn't like, know well, enough sh- to even question back then yeah exactly but but then it's like well shoot all of a sudden venus is rising at this time in the night that means that uh it's going to start causing things to warm up right and and it's not it's it's just kind of a, a an amalgamation of of predictive and and uh causative and it really lends a mystique to the sky, which it's not as though the night sky really needs that much help kind of taking on a mystical tone, especially if you've been somewhere that's remote enough to be more or less free of light pollution. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It is stunning to stand outside at night and just look up. And it's almost it's almost interesting to watch other people look at the night sky. If you ever have the chance to be, you know, far enough north where it's, you know, no, no, no light pollution. And, and you look around and there's all these people kind of staring up with their jaws slack. Agog. And, and it's and it's completely understandable, but it's also like, wow, we're, we're really easy to kind of stun, aren't we? Yeah, it's not something you see every day and it's beautiful and it makes one feel insignificant. Yeah. And, and I mean, we in, in modern society, that's something we've kind of lost a connection with a little bit when when you don't have the, the opportunity to see that full i was gonna say majesty i'm getting awful poetic over here now let's do it sure the full majesty of the of the of the night sky when when it's all washed out with night pollution or with uh with light pollution it's it's really something else to see it on a clear night so you also get people mixing in sort of divine elements with the night sky with uh specifically with a- anything that does change on a fast enough basis to be noticeable basically okay the stars in general other than sort of the entire rotation of the night sky or, or rather our rotation in relation the to the night sky, rotation of the night sky. <laughs> the stars the stars all move together they all move at the same speed right um at least from what you can tell for with, with the naked eye um but then you have the moon, which is obviously all over the place. Yep. You have the sun, which is all over the place. And then you have what we call the classical planets. And the word planet comes from a, a Greek word for traveler. And the reason for that is that the the planets basically look like really bright stars, except they're all over the place. Yeah. They, don't, they don't stick in one spot in the sky. And the ancients were really kind of curious as to why that is. And they ended up kind of associating the planets with... Uh, with the divine so most societies independently of one another uh, attributed uh, different planets to different gods in their pantheon Um, we're most familiar with the with the roman ones since we've named the planets after them but that's a that's a common thing that happened in in multiple 
societies uh, across the world completely independently. I'm actually making these connections in my head now for planets that you would actually be able to see and their perceived traits and why you would name the gods after them the way you would. Sure. Well, like especially Mercury Mars. would move quickly. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. Venus would be super bright mm-hmm. and beautiful. Mars would be red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it all makes sense now. I'd never put that together. Or maybe I did and forgot. I don't know. <laughs> but, it, but it makes perfect sense. It really does. Yeah. And I mean, those traits aren't as universal. Like, when you get right down into the nitty-gritty, like, personality things. For example, the Maya considered Venus to be their god of war. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not always a one-to-one. But still, they did consider Venus to be a physical manis- manifestation of a god, which is... I mean, they're halfway across the world. There hasn't been contact in tens of thousands of years. Right. That's a that's a pretty big, uh, significant um, unifying factor between very disparate uh, uh, cultures. Yeah. But then, you know, on, on sort of the more mundane level, it yeah, it, it, as you said earlier, it is about timekeeping. Um, most cultures start out on uh, a lunar calendar, which kind of makes sense. It's a little bit easier to... To keep track of the moon the the cycle takes 28 days give or take a couple hours mm-hmm. and it's it's super easy to track and it turns out that 13 lunar cycles is very close to a year it's 364 days so most cultures would use the 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 moon rather than the sun to track passing of time right so it's, it's a shorter unit it's a more accessible unit and it's it's fairly rare that um it gets out of step with the year so badly that it's not going to be a fairly good predictor of for example uh crop planting or harvest or other you know the solstice things like that major sure. major uh milestones in the year yeah if you've got a drift of a day or so i mean you know one can't really say oh it's only winter ending this day rather than this day i mean it's not going to make a huge difference practically i mean i, I can barely keep track now yeah and just like the internet <laughs> because it doesn't me. matter day to day really apparently spring started on the 20th this year it's been starting on the 20th for a couple of years now. See, I, We've I got this know. drift, right? And occasionally we'll have like a leap year sort of correct for that. Yep. All of a sudden it'll be the 22nd again. And yep. Yeah. But yeah, just ritual, timekeeping, things like that. When religious ceremonies are going to happen, all of that is tied to phases of the moon and, and keeping track of time using the moon. Mm-hmm. It's really convenient. Uh, the one new moon is, is 28 days after another one. One full moon is 28 days after the other one. It's, it's really quite regular. And something like the length of, the day, uh, of a day is really hard to measure. Right. And it's the best way to keep track of the solar year, right? When the, when the days switch from getting longer to getting shorter. Yeah, that's right. That makes sense. <laughs> yep. But unless you have accurate timekeeping, it, it's kind of tough to do. So you have a sense of like, yeah, it's about this long. But until you develop the, the technology to accurately track the length of a day, you're not going to be able to do that with any degree of accuracy well sure and and for a long time it might not have been super practical either right mm-hmm. it's it's you do what you need to do between sun up and sundown and well that's exactly it it's not really that relevant in general a drift of a day is not going to change most things in in uh the life of someone say four thousand years ago yeah and having a couple hours less sunlight in the winter than you do in the summer is something that you would note but Mm-hmm. ultimately doesn't change your day-to-day a whole lot i would imagine right well and i mean the further you get from the poles the more true that, or the further you get from the equator the more true that is but that that's a nitpicky thing it's, it's still <laughs> that's it's a still, different conversation entirely yeah, well yeah absolutely yeah. it's it's just that the the days vary more uh, as you go towards the poles so people in those regions just dealt with 
more varied day lengths and kind of adjusted to it accordingly. Yeah, completely different issues. Constellations are also used as really easily recognizable markers in the sky. This is, again, something that cultures across the globe do independently, even before there's any sort of real cultural exchange between them, mm-hmm. uh, including the idea of ascribing pictures and, and stories to various uh, clusters of stars. Now, there's a word for that. Constellation is the name of like the image that you create out of it and there's another name for like an actual collection of stars and i can never remember what it is oh i don't know we'll have to look it up and put it in the notes let me know if you think of it but yeah yeah, this may need to go in the show notes because if you're like okay well there's seven stars there and that's called something but then calling it like ursa major is Mm -hmm. what a constellation is (laughs) okay interesting i've heard and i mean this is a it might be a, a a faint distinction right but Again, it's something that I always grew up thinking the two were interchangeable. Yeah, I had no idea. Um, Interesting. Some of the constellations even end up being like the same constellations in various regions, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Some cultures have completely different constellations, but there are a few that that are kind of cross-cultural i was gonna guess i would figure that there would be a uh, some overlap there too right yeah it's well, like you know we've got these two constellations next to each other and then you know in another culture there's another third constellation that uses like some stars from one and right yeah. well certain things are very like obviously striking when you look at the night sky yeah. and so things like uh, orion's belt is really common uh, now you know how far outside of the actual three incredibly bright stars in a line right. that constellation extends is is kind of variable um same with the uh well what you would call the big dipper which is part of ursa major which is you know in some cultures it's a it's the tail of an animal some cultures it's a a plow um or a sickle uh but that kind of string of lights is is really bright and obvious in the sky that oh. tends to be really common it seems like the most common one or or one of, at least one of the most common ones is the pleiades uh, cluster okay it's, is it the southern cross no 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 it's the seven things? sisters oh okay um and it's this this tight uh, uh cluster of stars that you know with today's technology looking at it it's it's dozens of stars but the brightest uh uh six or seven come through really clearly and i mean that was identified by the maya the chinese the persians the sumerians like it it just goes on and on the japanese in fact the 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 name for the pleiades cluster in uh japanese is subaru like the cars and if you look at the subaru logo Uh uh-huh oh yeah yeah it's the it, it is the pleiades cluster so yeah some some of this stuff is really it's interesting how um uh, common it is across cultures and and you know so, sometimes when you get cultural phenomena you can kind of trace it back to some sort of like proto-culture or trace it back to a point in time where it came from another culture where right. uh you know movable type or something like that it's like oh well like you know it came from china at this point and all of that this seems like it's a truly independently developed uh phenomenon that it's a very innately human thing to the point where it's it's on a list of things that they would check about any new kind of isolated societies or civilizations that they would come across say you know in 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 the mid-20th century where there's the last vestiges of uh tribal civilizations being discovered in the in the south pacific or in the uh, amazon things like that Mm -hmm. um do they do they look at the stars and the answer is invariably yes yeah and they've they've noticed the same patterns you have Mm -hmm. calendars being developed by again uh you know the maya had incredibly intricate lunar calendars uh this whole you know 2012 
year of destruction thing. Cuts That's, a total. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 all coming from it's all coming from lunar calendars. They also tracked the solar calendar, but the lunar calendar was the base of their main calendar. They had like five calendars, though. We'll, we'll not get into all of that. Oh, today. sure, and I'm sure uh, lots of overlapping seasons and holidays and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's all again ritualistic in nature. Egyptians, Chinese, Indian, Sumerian, Greek, Persian, all using using uh, lunar calendars at least to begin with. Um, Generally, they would start rolling in a solar calendar once they got to a point where they could accurately measure the year or relatively accurately measure the year. But lunar calendar is the default calendar uh, for the most part, to the point that um, we actually found a, a really interesting ar uh, artifact uh, in Germany called the Nebra Sky Disk. Okay, and it's a bronze disk, and it's got gold riveted into it kind of thing and it's when you look at it it, it kind of looks it kind of looks like a kindergartner's drawing of the sky okay in some ways but what it has on it is a big smiling sun with sunglasses <laughs> well it has a new moon it has a crescent moon okay at about where it would be about four or five days after a new moon mm -hmm. and it has a horizon and it has the pleiades cr cluster okay and they figured out that what that means is that when the Pleiades cluster is that point on the horizon, oh. when the when the moon has gotten to that crescent shape, it's time to uh, add an extra lunar month to the year to get it recalibrated. Uh, oh, okay. A leap month. Yeah. It's 3,000 years old. Yes. Okay. I'm just trying to do some math in my head <laughs> for how often that would be necessary. Uh, between two and three years. Yep. Uh, that's interesting mm -hmm. because that's very much like a, an issue of degrees, right? Because you're looking at the horizon, something is a certain amount above it. That's not going to really matter as far as distance. No, that's interesting. I mean, there's going to be variations depending on like the topography of the land. If there's like a hill, it's going to mess things up. But... Sure. But if you're in a relatively f flat area that you're probably using for farming or something like that. Yeah. Then, yeah, I can it's, see where that would work. That'd be pretty consistent, too, I imagine. Or at least consistent enough that... Well, at that latitude, right? Like yeah, exactly. It's, it's the main th main thing. But as far as tools in order to calibrate a, a lunar calendar, that's relatively sophisticated when you're, when you're considering all the factors. Yeah, um, absolutely. But also very, very straightforward, very easy to use. Mm -hmm. There's lots of structures that are designed for astronomy. Stonehenge is the obvious uh, go-to example where... Basically, the, the way that Stonehenge is set up, at the summer solstice, the, the sunrise will shine directly through. Mm -hmm. And at uh, the winter solstice, the sunset will shine directly through, which is pretty cool. It's, it's, it's quite well calibrated for considering the, the size and kind of how difficult it Crudeness is to work with. Of it. <laughs> yeah, to work with those materials. I mean, Stonehenge... You can only calibrate something so precisely when it's a giant rock. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stonehenge isn't quite as... You know, you know, people make a big deal out of it, and there's the whole alien architects and all of that. <laughs> and it's 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 garbage, because I also saw a BBC special of a man who likes erecting those stones in his backyard. And yep. It, it's, it's, it's not as hard to do as it maybe seems at first blush, but it, it's still not easy and it's still not easy to do in a in a properly calibrated manner but it, it's it's clear that uh, at least those two things were absolutely intentional about stonehenge and there may be a number of other uh, astrological phenomena that uh, that that are designed to line up through stonehenge although those aren't quite as well yeah. established well, i imagine it's sort of like a, a like a standing sundial almost <laughs> 
kind of. I mean, the, the idea is always to be able to stand at one point and see a thing through the spaces that are left at certain times in the year. Right. And I mean, Stonehenge was built around 5,000 years ago. It's, it's, uh, it's not a recent thing. Uh, likewise, the, uh, the Great Pyramids, over 4,000 years old, they're uh, aligned with a high degree of accuracy to what would have been the polar star at the time because of the because of axial drift uh the 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 polar star changes over time right but they are aligned very carefully north south as are a number of tombs in in egypt um axial drift is one of those things that when i found out about as like a 13 year old it blew my mind (laughs) it requires you to comprehend an amount of time that's just yeah a a little bit beyond the 13 year old (laughs) Because it's something like the Earth acts as a wobbles a rotation every 27,000 years or yeah. something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's there's an artifact in Berlin called the Berlin Golden Hat, uh, which is a spiral column depicting the sun and the moon over the number of months it takes to recalibrate a calendar. Like it's, okay. in, a, it's in a kind of a spiral going up a column. Okay. And there's, there's tons of these columns around, uh, especially in Germany, but that one is actually complete uh, again from about 1000 BCE. Wow. So over 3000 years ago, people cared a lot about uh, the stars and the alignment of the sun and the moon. There were uh, tombs in, in uh, Egypt where there's at least two that are confirmed that that the the ceiling is de- uh, decorated with the stars, the way that the stars would be outside of the tomb, mm-hmm. um, on a certain date, usually one of the solstices. Oh, okay. Yep. But, you know, if, if you account for axial drift and for the time of year, to a fairly high degree of accuracy, the decorations on the ceiling look exactly like the sky outside. So it's almost a timestamp at that point. <laughs> almost. Yeah. It's it's fresh in the seal. We mentioned that special attention was paid to planets. It's really important to remember that for these people, the sun and the moon are considered planets. Right. Because your definition is a, a, an object in the sky that uh, doesn't stay in place, that moves around. Yeah. And so a lot of times you'll actually hear the planets referred to as, as the seven classical planets, and that includes the, the sun and the moon. So besides that, you have Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Right. And those are the planets that you can see with the naked eye. Yes, I've heard this described as sort of like an ancient model of the universe where you have like this shell that the Earth is in the center of the inside of. Mm -hmm. And basically it's it's black, it's painted with stars. And so that is the edge of the universe and everything else is sort of inside it and can be observed moving independently with the Earth at its center. Yeah, that's that's the Platonic model. And we'll we'll get to that very shortly. Oh, okay. I think we're gonna Sorry. wrap Let's up some ahead. of the ancient stuff. No, 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 that's that's fine. That's that's extremely astute. That's important to understanding ancient astronomy. But right, the the point being that it seemed like the ancients sort of thought as the stars as one sort of solid unit. Yeah, that they all move together, and anything that doesn't is a planet. Well, the the other thing that kind of comes into play is that in order to understand the universe the way that we do now you have to understand uh, a number of concepts that require, I hate to use the word faith, but it takes a bit of a leap of understanding to uh, to accept them as truth. Right. Things like the force of gravity acting over long distances, things like the idea of vacuum, right. things like uh, the expansion of the universe and, and astronomical distances. There's a lot of stuff at play there that aren't necessarily apparent from... Uh, what's observable by the naked eye with someone 
that is lacking virtually every scientific tool that we would consider yeah. essential to astronomy. It's this concept where human understanding gets you so far and you basically fill in everything you don't know with God. Uh, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be divine, although that, that is an aspect of it. But the, the question becomes, what are the stars on? Yeah. Everything has to sit on something. Right. I mean, the only things that don't are birds and they come down eventually. <laughs> you know, when they stop flying, they, they drop. So that's that's something that's considered unique to flying animals. Every Everything else sits on something. What do the, what do the stars sit on? Yep. It's not an easy question to answer. It seems obvious to us, but it's not. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Right. The Babylonians apparently, supposedly, had a very good understanding of predicting planetary movement. We're not entirely sure, though, unfortunately, what their model of the universe was, because it wasn't entirely geocentric. We do know that, but we don't have good records of what exactly it was. Only that there were Greek astronomers who were frustra frustrated that their models weren't working as well as the, ba the Babylonian ones had, which doesn't help us a lot. <laughs> but we do know that they allowed for something other than simply the, the Earth is in the middle of everything and all of these, these objects circles. move around in circles. So that's one of those, you know, every once in a while you come across a historical mystery that's kind of, we're probably never going to solve it. But if you did, it would make your career. This uh, is one yeah. of those. If you could actually figure out what the Babylonian model was, uh, and the Sumerian model by extension, because the Babylonians were an extension of the Sumerian civilization, which was really the first one to give us writing and, and, and therefore the first one to uh, leave us any record of how they thought about the, the sky other than kind of pictographic right. representations. Yeah. We do have some uh, cuneiform tablets in, in Babylonian detailing some of this stuff, but not enough and not enough to give us a, a comprehensive uh, answer. Mm -hmm. Chinese astronomy, um, very active at this point in time, focused heavily on divination. So, so uh, predicting the future, they had a, a, a special focus on what they called visitor stars. Okay. Um, visitor stars are what we now would call supernovas, comets, uh, asteroids, meteors, anything that was not part of the the permanent celestial established sphere. sky. <laughs> so yeah, anything that's temporary and brief and notable, mm -hmm. because that meant that something big had changed. Yeah. And uh, as we talked about before, this idea that the heavens had an, an effect on the Earth, which is kind of understandable when you when you consider the predictive model, mm -hmm. means that anything out of the ordinary happening in the sky must mean that something out of the ordinary is happening. Mm -hmm. On, on on the earth right and it's this whole idea that we see uh often in fiction where like the coming of a comet is some portent of a great omen or well, something like that yeah and, and that's directly based on on history that's that's what comets meant to people right as well i i mean that's 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 the reason that you have the birth of christ marked by the a new star in the sky right and i mean that's that's less of a, a you know an astrological explanation for it but more that something so important on the ground had happened that it must be reflected in the sky right would be the kind of the the more monotheistic interpretation of all of that but it's almost one of those um that, that couldn't have happened without it being reflected in the stars of course <laughs> likewise eclipses were considered uh, extremely pretentious they're they're keeping an eye on anything that's that's out of the ordinary. They understood the precession of the planets. They weren't always great at predicting them, but they did a pretty good job. Um, 
retrograde motion was still a big issue for them. We'll we'll come back to retrograde motion in in a little while, but uh, it, it was hard to explain. Yeah. Now our eclipse is not happening often enough that they can sort of track it as something that just happens, or are they still assigning value to that? Well, let's talk about eclipses a little bit. Okay. Eclipses don't happen on an obviously regular scale to the point where they could track them to the day. Likewise, they didn't necessarily understand the mechanism behind an eclipse uh, in the same way that we do now. (laughs) And so they couldn't necessarily watch for the signs of it. Um, The moon's orbit is about five degrees tilted away from the Earth's orbit around the sun, which is why we don't get an eclipse every full moon and every new moon. We only get an eclipse when the full moon is occurring at uh, one of the nodes of the of the um, the orbit, which means that even though the the moon's orbit is tilted uh, at the nodes, it's at about uh, it, it's at the same level as the uh, the line between the Earth and the Sun. Um, it's it's easier really to look up a picture of this. It yeah. all makes sense on it's on, on the same plane as the solar system. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, me, me describing it is probably going to be crazy confusing and looking at a picture will clear it all up. Yep. But there, there is a regular uh, procession of them. It's just that it takes something like 23 years. I, I would have to double check on that for it to go through the whole procession, mm-hmm. which is a little bit harder to observe and record than, say, one lunar cycle, which <laughs> sure. is kind of the, the, the frequency on which they're working. They're also... At the point where they're assigning this uh, this much importance to uh, eclipses, we've already kind of decoupled from the idea of observational astronomy and gotten into kind of astrology, where it's like, well, this must be some sort of omen. Not necessarily, well, this is an easily observed phenomena that happens at a regular interval. Okay. So there is one type of obvious interval that that you can kind of get on, which is that if it's been a while since uh, an eclipse... Usually there's going to be a first eclipse and then about seven months later, there's going to be a second eclipse Mm -hmm. and then a a larger gap again. That one they would eventually figure out by, let's say, the third century BCE. Okay. Um, But it took a while. So it's it's still infrequent enough that, you know, you can't plot any easily recognized pattern. (laughs) Yeah, the the frequency of the... um, lunar orbit doesn't line up properly with the uh with the phases of the moon to yeah. make it happen with with uh, a, a very regular frequency yeah one of those fun facts about eclipses that i like is that it's completely just random that the earth has them at all it's not something that appears on most planets just because of the relative distance of mm-hmm. like our moon and our sun and the angle of the moon's orbit like it's yeah it's just completely like wow that doesn't happen on most planets with moons. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really quite amazing, actually. Yeah. Um, and lunar eclipses happen more easily than than solar eclipses, which makes the solar eclipses that much more pretentious in the in the minds of of the ancients. But but yeah, all, all of the all of the math that makes that work. We again it, now you can go on Google and find a a, a table of the next hundred years of eclipses, no problem. Oh but, sure, yeah. Um, when it was first figured out that you could kind of calculate this stuff that that made you like a wizard basically yeah yeah well um, and, and understandably so <laughs> yeah absolutely i'm i'm you know I, I i don't mean any any insult by it if you could figure it out you you were 
you were good to go. You basically waltzed into the the nearest nobles uh, residence and said, "Hey, I tell you what, four days there's going to be a solar eclipse." Yeah. As a quick aside, I know that this is the subject of like a famous rant that Neil deGrasse Tyson has with uh, James Cameron. Okay. Have you heard the story? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, this was uh, his rant about the movie Titanic. Because okay. yep. he's like, oh, James Cameron, he did all this research. Like, he, you know, took the bathysphere down into the wreck of the Titanic and, like, replicated everything with this uh, incredible amount of historical accuracy to the point yep. where, like, the pattern on the China was exactly the same. He's like, oh, it's it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Yep. But Neil deGrasse Tyson's big rant is, like, there's a scene at the end where, like, they look up at the starry sky and it's the wrong sky. Yeah, the, the stars are in the wrong place. And he's yeah. like, if you would have just, like, we know, like, the time, the day, the time of year, the exact longitude and latitude that this happened, if you would called me up i could have given him a picture of the sky <laughs> yeah yeah and, and i'm and i'm sure for for the folks at nasa that's a they, they plug it in and it's a three minute generator yeah exactly and it's one of those things that like you know director james cameron probably wouldn't think of but burns neil degrasse tyson up yeah well they they replaced the sky didn't they uh, in a in a special edition i think that they did uh, yeah yeah the, the story the, the neil ndt story continues that basically he was at like a state dinner or something with james cameron and basically gave him shit for it. yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and james and cameron was like you know what i you know it's the highest grossing movie of all time but you know if i'd only got that sky right man <laughs> And then well, he was, per, you know, he's like, all right, you got me. But then they fair, did the re-release and they got this guy right. Yeah. To be fair, from from everything I've heard, James Cameron didn't care that much for the movie. He just wanted a chance to go down to the Titanic and yeah. convince the studios to fund him. So why not? I, I'm, I'm sure he can still sleep at night. One of the biggest unifiers for historical calendars while we're, we're talking about matching up times and dates and things like that are how important these supernovas are. Because we have records of the same supernovas from various points across the globe happening at the same time. And uh, the first conspiracy theory episode we talked about, right. um, this, this, I, this, this missing time conspiracy, which basically says that uh, Charlemagne and a couple of his bros fabricated a couple hundred years so that they could be alive at the year 1000. Yeah. No, that's not true. And one of the reasons we know it's not true <laughs> is that... In 1054 in China, a supernova was recorded, and in 1054 in in the Middle East, Arab astronomers recorded the exact same uh, supernova, and they line up perfectly with all of the dates. And we use those to calibrate things happening in in various places around the, in the uh, in the world because um, everyone recorded it. Everyone in the world could see it, and it was important enough that they all wrote it down. Yeah, and it's really really useful to us. And now you can go back and look at all the records. Like, okay, okay, here's timestamp. This is when this happened. Yeah. Now we can extrapolate. Exactly. It's incredibly useful for us to uh, build um, timelines out in systems that aren't always that great on, on, on keeping time. Well, if everyone's using a different calendar, or in some cases, five different calendars, <laughs> it gets tricky. Well, exactly. We've been, in, we've been avoiding one civilization in particular, which is the Greeks, because um, things are really going to pop off there. So I think we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about classical Greek astronomy and uh, really get into the good stuff. Word. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Kevin Miller. Yo! And we've been talking about uh, about ancient astronomy. Yeah. Which has been fun. Stars and shit. But now we're going to step things up. 
Big time, because we're the Greeks, and that's all they do. Slightly less ancient astronomy. It's still pretty ancient when you think about it. I mean, a lot of the stuff we're talking about here happens over 2,600 years ago. Yep. Which is kind of kind of crazy. Yeah, I, I guess I have this trend of, of going with really ancient topics for your podcast. That's fine. Yeah, I, no. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about ancient stuff. And, yeah, and this one is broad-reaching, though, because we're going from, like, 3000 BC up to, like, 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to get pretty recent by the end of this, that's for sure. That's okay. I, I really like survey topi- topics. It's uh, it's fun to give give a broad picture of a, of a subject rather than get, you know, right down and dirty. Yeah. It's a history of a concept rather than a history of a person. <laughs> I think that's fine. Yeah. I, there's sometimes too many histories of people. That's a, it's a weird thing to say. Oh, that I've, came I've, out I've, strangely, but... I've run the gamut, even on my f- five appearances on this show. Is it that many? It's five. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I can name them all if you want. <laughs> I believe you. No, 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 it's fine. I believe you. No, I, I, I know what you mean, though. It's, it's, it's sometimes really fun to get really granular on stuff like that, but in, in general, I'm looking to talk about kind of broad reaching stuff because yeah. i think it gives us a better understanding of of our our overall picture and i think that's a really valuable thing so uh and, this is kind of my thing and because we constantly have to call each other out is five now which means i'm tied with phil watch the throne <laughs> i'm gonna call phil next month <laughs> no it's been a while since i've been on too i fully expect him to be on next month uh no i don't think phil's on next month but i don't know we'll see we'll see <laughs> greek math is oddly tied to greek philosophy um actually you you lent me a book one time which was really interesting on uh actually the concept of zero which sounds like the most boring book in the universe but it was really a book it strikes an interesting narrative which is interesting (laughs) yeah it's it's a it's a it's a strange and and complicated concept and uh it's had its troubles over the years Sure. So um, they they have a pretty decent section on on how Greek math works, though, and basically, Greek math comes down to a couple of things. One is that every number needs to be able to be expressed as a fraction, and number two is that it needs to work alongside physical geometry, like real, actual, expressible shapes. Right, which seems problematic right off the bat if you know anything about irrational numbers. <laughs> well, yeah, anything about modern math kind of. Yeah, you're running into a wall real quick off like, the bat. Let's think of some basic shapes right off the top of our head. Like, uh, let's think about a circle, for example. Yeah. <laughs> now, how in a fraction do you express the uh, ratio of the circumference to the diameter? No, it's fine. We'll just we'll just fudge it a little. Yeah, just a little. Um, Approximately yeah, they, three. <laughs> they, they ran they ran into big problems with with stuff like that, but at the same time, they developed a system which was. Uh, relatively simple and remarkably versatile despite its limitations. They absolutely considered astronomy one of the four branches of math, especially after the age of Pythagoras, who kind of established most of these concepts uh, from the get-go. Right. Has a theorem named after him. Maybe you've heard of him. Yep. <laughs> um, so of yeah, means. Me- measuring, measuring the stars, the movement of the stars anything to do with uh, sort of observational astronomy is is very tied up in theoretical astronomy for uh, for the Greeks. And in some ways, it was revolutionary. They learned a lot of new stuff from this. In other ways, it's going to hold them back a lot because even early on, we get tied up in, in a very 
uh, philosophical kind of metaphysical view of the universe. And the Greeks start kind of trying to cram what they see, what they observe about the universe into this theoretical construct. Yeah. Um, and as soon as you start doing that, you're going to run into big problems. Yeah, they're coming up with a theory to fit their conclusion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Aristotle gets involved, which, you know, <laughs> womp, womp. <laughs> should should, uh, should tell you right there that, that we're, we're not doing so much stargazing as we are doing uh, theorizing. Yeah. But, but I mean, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. He didn't necessarily only harm astronomy. He did no, a lot of good no. things as well. He was a smart guy. Yeah. You know, sure, limited by the knowledge of his time and, and the tools available to him. But but still, he got he got a lot of really interesting stuff figured out. For example, he noted that the shadow of the Earth on the moon during an eclipse uh, was a circle. Right. And he correctly hypothesized that that meant that the Earth was a sphere. You know, he had other evidence to back this up for example uh people traveling far enough south into egypt would start seeing a different set of stars than could be seen in greece mm-hmm. uh what he's looking at is basically the entire southern hemisphere of of, of stars and that's really only possible on a, a spherical object he also noted that if if you if you work with plumb lines far enough apart you realize that everything tends towards a single center on the earth he was talking about measuring gravitational pull before he really understood what gravity was. Knew what that was, yeah. But the, again, logical outcome of that is that the the Earth has to be a sphere. And the Greeks were comfortable with spheres, maybe more comfortable than they should have been given their their rational number allergy. (laughs) Uncomfortableness with pi. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, But they understood the idea of spheres and really saw spheres as an ideal shape. I mean, that's a concept that comes from Plato when we talk about you know the the allegory of the cave and all of that he loves spheres yep very convenient (laughs) who doesn't like spheres (laughs) in fact plato was the one who developed what's known as the the two sphere model he was so convinced that this was a good explanation of the universe that he actually hired a, a mathematician specifically to help him prove that what he was hypothesizing was uh was true uh-huh. which should <laughs> tell you right there that this is an issue yeah that's uh oh. um it's a it's a guy named eudoxus of canidus this is early fourth century bce that we're talking here so it's it's a while ago but he's he's talking about this two sphere model basically the idea that one sphere is the earth and the other sphere is the heavens both are perfectly spherical. Everything in the heavens moves through a medium known as the ether. Ether is this sort of hypothetical, poorly defined uh, medium through which the bodies were supported and through which they could move. There was nothing like it on Earth. It was light. It was strong. It would support the stars in their place. It was really just a device that was a fudge factor. And yeah, it, it's it also helped... Uh, Plato come up with this idea of of sort of um, the dichotomy be- between um, you know the sacred and the profane, the the heavens and the earth, uh, um, uh, spiritual and 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 tangible. It really fit quite nicely into his philosophy, which should be a, a warning bell for everybody. Yep, he came up with the conclusion that he wanted. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, to some extent, it does help uh, explain and predict. A lot of things that are happening in the sky, which is a useful thing to astronomers. I mean, 
there, there is always the practical side of all of this. It's easy to kind of focus on the theoretical and the amount of knowledge that these people are working with. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you're trying to track the stars, knowing what time of day you can expect a certain constellation to be rising is a useful thing to know. And uh, Eudoxus's model does let you do that right yeah it just runs into problems with the planets yes it paints everything kind of in the same location at all times relative to the earth Mm -hmm. changes were made to the model to help kind of refine it and make it more accurate Um, we we talked earlier about how uh, a lot of greek astronomers were concerned that their model didn't necessarily stack up to uh, what the babylonian right astronomers were working with in in terms of uh, predictability specifically with the planets there was a there was a mathematician named and, and astronomer named Apollonius of Persia in uh, the 3rd century BCE who proposed a, a slight change to Plato's model known as the deferent epicycle model and what that meant was um, deferent means off center so mm-hmm. that the sphere wasn't perfectly centered on the earth uh, which helps explain things like variations in brightness of stars uh, okay. because they're technically getting slightly further away ah okay an epicycle meant that uh, within the spheres themselves, there are tiny rotating circles that the planets are attached to. Okay. So imagine a sphere mm-hmm. and put a gear wheel on that sphere. Okay. Now, as the sphere turns, mm-hmm. that tiny gear is also turning on the surface of the sphere. Okay. The epicycle helps to uh, explain... Uh, retrograde motion. We mentioned it earlier, but didn't really get into it. Retrograde motion is something that the planets do from our perspective on Earth. And the reason that planets go through retrograde motion is that the heavens are not centered on Earth. Yep. (laughs) And that means that as the Earth moves, so does our perspective on the planets around us. And as uh, the Earth more quickly moves past the orbit of other uh, slower moving planets, although it, it happens with the inner planets as well, as our perspective sweeps past, it looks like, if you're just looking up into the sky, it looks like the planets reverse direction very briefly and then continue on their transit across the sky. Right. The spheres would explain everything perfectly if it wasn't for retrograde motion. It would explain the heavens in the sense that the model that was suggested by astronomers after Plato as it was refined was a number of nested crystalline spheres made of ether so they were you, you could see right through them but the uh, the planets were suspended on them and as the spheres rotated the planets moved mm-hmm. and then the farthest sphere outside of of the earth the, the furthest one out uh, had all the he- or had all the stars basically painted on them and they never moved but the entire sphere rotated around the earth yeah it's it's a series of nested spheres that all kind of rotate around inside Mm -hmm. the stars (laughs) yeah and then the idea of like what's outside of that is well there is no outside basically or um if you if you extend this into um the middle ages uh heaven yeah but that's the idea is that that's where like our universe basically ends the 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 ancient concept of our universe the entire the entirety of of existence was the earth the the classical planets and then a, a sphere with the stars on it. Right. Which is a very small universe compared to what we understand now. Sure, but it's all we could see. Yes, it's it's entirely understandable. So these epicycles help 
explain retrograde motion because if you have the um the sphere rotating one way Mm -hmm. but the circle is rotating the opposite way then the planet would in fact stall and then move backwards for for a moment in time before it continued onwards right in terms of what you would actually observe it wouldn't be perfect but it does a much better job of explaining planetary motion than simple nested spheres right and so that's kind of the it's kind of the model that works best for the Greeks. Um, they still weren't entirely satisfied with it. Again, still didn't quite stack up to this mystery system that the Babylonians had, apparently. But because we don't know that system, uh, we can't really speak to why. Right. And then something really interesting happens. Not that long after Apollonius uh, proposes this new system. An astronomer named Aristarchus of Samos comes along and he says, what if the sun was at the middle of all of this? Yeah. And everyone went, no. And that was about the end of it. (laughs) Aristarchus had a really good point that it explains a lot of the issues that uh, astronomers were running up against. Sure. You don't have to explain away retrograde orbits Mm -hmm. if you have the sun at the middle. You also run up against the behemoth that is plato true and that was a hurdle that uh that he really couldn't get over once you have plato not only explaining how or or, or explaining what the universe is but why the universe is that way Mm -hmm. through again these kind of dualistic explanations of the earth and the heavens right everything makes sense and for someone to come along and say that's nice, but that's not reality. Yeah, is it's nice and tidy. <laughs> it, it's it's scary. Yeah. I mean, that and he had really no good uh, evidence for for why that might be the case, other than uh, it, it being a, a simpler model. But the the sort of metaphysical ramifications of that being the case are are a little bit bigger than the evidence that he could bring to the table. Right. So we have sort of these behemoths of plato and aristotle sort of proposing these models of the universe Mm -hmm. and anyone who is kind of speaking counter to that is is easily dismissed very easily they need to bring a lot of evidence and in some cases branded a heretic i imagine (laughs) yeah and i mean not not at this point in 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 greece but you know the the fact that we know today who socrates plato and aristotle are is no accident those three thinkers had such a massive impact on western culture that it's really really hard to overstate them they're kind of a big deal and they they shaped our worldview in multiple fields for thousands of years in some cases yep maybe you heard of them it's hard to take their stuff and refute it part of that is the limitation of our you know of the of the observational tools at our disposal part of it is because they were real smart like i don't i don't want to i don't want to diminish that at all they no were no very smart men yeah i don't want to claim that they were wrong on everything by any means <laughs> but that being said their general drive to make the universe a meaningful place sometimes caused well-meaning but uh misguided missteps and that sense of of holistic understanding mm-hmm. uh, at times in history will absolutely override empirical evidence that we gather. Oh, sure. And it's, you know, it's it's tough to see. It's just a thing that happens. 
uh, new information is is challenging and by by nature, and uh, and it's not always the most uh, easily accepted piece of evidence. So, anyways, around the same time, uh, an astronomer named Aristophanes measured the circumference of the Earth. Andy, he did it in a really interesting way. Uh, he he basically went to a well that he could look down. He knew it was perfectly plumb. Using okay. a plumb line. Yep. So he knew it was a 90 degree angle. He found a well that in Egypt that he could look down and see his head perfectly block out the sun. Okay. What this meant was that at this point on the earth, yeah. the rays from the sun were coming down at a perfect 90 degree angle. Yeah, directly overhead. He had found the equator. Yeah. He then went to Alexandria in Egypt which he knew was 5,000, I believe it's leagues. Uh, it was a really, <laughs> one of those little tiny <laughs> measurements that's kind of inaccurate. Yeah, but furlongs. <laughs> he, he knew the exact distance to this place. Right. He then uh, set uh, a pole so that, uh, in, into the ground so that he, uh, so, so it had no shadow, mm-hmm. and then measured the angle between that pole and the ground. Okay, so he basically made a, a sector of the earth. Yep. And he found that it was about seven degrees of the earth. Yeah. And he knew the dif- distance from seven degrees off yeah. to uh, zero degrees off. Yep. And uh, took that, multiplied it to get to uh, the, the yeah, circumference of the earth. 360 degrees. Yep. yep. Uh, it's, it's a very simple measurement. It's, it's incredibly um, uh, ingenious the way that he kind of Yeah, I imagine he got pretty close. <laughs> he got within 10 or 15% of, of the actual circumference of the earth, yep. which is kind of amazing. That's only a difference about 4,000 to 6,000 kilometers off, mm-hmm. which, yeah, that's that's a long distance. But the Earth is only about 40,000 kilometers around. That's that's not bad. No. Um, is, is this something that kind of leads into, like, the discovery of the new world, us missing a few time zones, that whole thing? Like, the you, thought that we thought that you there know, wasn't a continent there? I wasn't going to bring there. it up, but now that you mention it... Columbus absolutely did know about Aristophanes, had read his works, and chose to ignore it in favor of a map that had been made by a man who never left Italy. So, oh, okay. um, so just willful ignorance. At that yeah. Point. So he, he he knew that he knew that Aristophanes had said that the world was about forty four thousand kilometers around. He knew the distance from you know he knew the distance approximately of the south uh, of the Silk Road. Yep. Um, knew the distance from there to so so he basically knew how far it was from the Atlantic coast to China. Yeah. And decided that the world was like a third smaller because some dude who'd never left Italy said so, and he chose to believe that. So, so here I was ready to give Columbus the benefit of the doubt and no. just assume that America fit within this margin of error. No, no it didn't. It didn't. It didn't even close to. Okay, well that's what I get for trying to give Columbus the benefit of the doubt. Ever. No, it was. He he thought it was over twelve thousand kilometers smaller in circumference than it is. <laughs> that's a pretty big margin. That's a pretty big margin. It's even outside the actual margin of error. Yep. Like by a long shot, if there hadn't been a new world accidentally crash into and then enslaved then uh columbus would have starved to death at sea yeah something like two thousand years after the fact <sighs> aristophanes had this locked down uh, man. one of these days blesky we're gonna get you on a columbus podcast and just let you vent for two hours <laughs> i don't know if i want to do that i don't like feeling that angry <laughs> i know it's just if you if we could like do like a super cut of all the hi 101 podcasts where we talk about columbus for two minutes <laughs> i like to point out that you brought this one up i me. did because i knew <laughs> i'm sorry guy's a wiener i just i just nothing <laughs> good about him not at all a wiener it's interesting that um, actually not that long ago, some 
I, I forgot to write his name down, but there were there were astronomers that actually replicated Aristophanes' method okay. uh, of calculating the Earth's uh, circumference. So the only thing that changed really is the fact that they had more accurate uh, land distance measurements. I was just going to ask. All I can do is measure like an angle and a distance more more accurately. But the angle was the same measurement. Like the angle isn't. Oh, they did important. it with Alexandria. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure if they used the same exact same distance. What matters is that they had better information about how far the the land distance is. Okay. The, the distance doesn't matter. What matters is that is that the distance is known, right? Because then you get into trigonometry. You're okay. measuring you're measuring angles and lengths. Mm-hmm. So, I, I believe they still used Alexandria to. Uh, Forget the name of the city with the the well, Samos or something like that. Um, in any case, uh, it it doesn't matter. There are a few measurements that, or, or there are a few things that Aristophanes' measurement assumes that aren't necessarily safe assumptions. For example, that all uh, solar rays are exactly parallel, which isn't exactly true. Oh, yeah. That the Earth is a perfect sphere, which is not. Mm-hmm. But even given those those X factors using a better measured known distance, modern day astronomers were able to measure the circumference of the Earth to within less than 1% variance of the actual uh, NASA official surveyed by satellite circumference of the Earth. Yeah, so the method is is certainly sound, but not necessarily the measurement. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, which is which is really interesting. I mean, these guys were not dumb. They, they were... Oh, no. Even considering the uh, the limitations of the, the math at hand, which were severe, yeah, they had some fairly accurate information at their hands. Well, and it, it follows because, as you were saying earlier, like a, a large amount of their culture was based around geometry, and mm-hmm. a large amount of their culture was based around trying to find like how that applied to philosophy and their world as a whole. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they would be like, hey, if the Earth is a sphere, let's figure out how big. Yep. We can no, do this using angles and math. <laughs> it's it's perfectly reasonable. And I mean, in, in doing so, Aristophanes essentially proved that the Earth was a sphere, mm-hmm. that this, the, you know, that the angles varied the way that they did. Yeah, which would have been proof on its own if that wasn't already a known thing. Exactly. I mean, there was still some argument even a couple hundred years before that, uh, even after it had been proposed. But we, we even have proof in, in really interesting places that weren't even necessarily aware that they were going to be future-proof. For example, uh, in Herodotus, who is considered the father of modern history. He was a a Greek historian. He wrote about uh, uh, an Egyptian expedition where basically they sailed all the way around the continent of Africa. Okay. And there was some question about whether they had actually done that, mm-hmm. but some of the observances that they, or the observations that they recorded, for example, the where the sun was coming up and, and things like that. Okay, yeah. The angle at which the sun was coming up, the stars that they saw. Yeah, because um, sailing around Africa is a huge difference in latitude. <laughs> massive. Yeah. It's a very, very big continent. It actually kind of proved it after the fact, even though Herodotus was kind of like, yeah, I don't know, this is a thing that they said they did, maybe. The things that they listed as, as future proof seems so inconsequential that there was no reason to put it in there. Yeah, here, it's like here's a, some neat facts. Let's see if we can draw a conclusion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's it's uh, you know, this this myth that we thought that the earth was flat until the 1500s is yeah, not not even close Perhaps to true. giving Columbus too much credit. <laughs> not even close to true. <laughs> uh 2nd century BCE, uh, an astronomer named Hipparchus of Nicaea started the first modern star catalog. Star catalogs are basically lists of stars. Uh, where they show up in the sky, um, their brightness and their color. 
Sounds pretty simple. Say maps to celebrities' houses. The thing, <laughs> <laughs> the thing about star catalogs, though, is that we didn't bother keeping them until, uh, you know, this guy saw a new star, a nova, nova, uh, new okay. star. That's where the word supernova comes from. Yep. And before that, we hadn't really considered that that was a possibility. And so, if the stars are always there and always continuous. Why bother writing every single one down? Hipparchus's uh, rationale there is that, shoot, if stars can appear, that means stars can go away. So we should catalog what we have, and therefore we can keep track of these things because okay. it might mean something. I don't know what, but maybe it means something. Yeah. In doing so, he basically invented the modern classification system for star brightness and star color. Okay. Um, Which is important, very important. Very important. In fact, there's only been one major addition to the way we catalog stars since then. Yeah. And it happened within the last 150 years. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's that's a good mark on history. <laughs> Hipparchus is also a good candidate for the first to develop a reliable prediction method for eclipses. Okay. Maybe not. We have this tendency. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. We have this tendency, especially uh, with, with Greek uh, figures, to attribute every big Give them a ton of credit to one of the to one of the big ones to one of the famous ones that's yeah. why pythagoras apparently invented, invented everything math. ever <laughs> yeah he invented all of math and plus just a bunch of other stuff egypt who <laughs> no one ever wants to give the arabs their due i know on that that's a thing and i mean to be fair the arabs are going to really come into their own ninth tenth century mm -hmm. but you know for for this for this period yeah the, the greeks they 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 liked their their important famous people to be well rounded. Oh sure. I you know there's. Well, and I mean, they, you said they had their four main sort of pillars of society, and ev everyone whose name we still remember sort of practiced all of them. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, Archimedes invented basically everything. Just yeah. look it up. It's Just everything. <laughs> Greek fire and also hummus. I guess I don't know. What did that guy do? Delicious. Uh, I feel like hummus would have invented itself eventually. <laughs> no, it was one of the great ones. I, I swear. <laughs> Look it up. That's not true at all. <laughs> we found this really, really, really cool thing called the Antikythera. The Antikythera was made between 100 and 150 CE. So a little less than 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we found it at the bottom of at the bottom of the Mediterranean in a shipwreck. Yes, I've heard of this. I was going to say I know this name. It is a little tiny gear system. It's a it's a number of interlocking gears, and it is used to calculate the position of stars. Mm -hmm. um, this is the same function that eventually astrolabs would be used for. Right. Except that the Antikythera had. Um, a level of technology that we didn't think existed for a very long time afterwards. Yeah. Uh, it had a differential gear in, in, inside it, which we thought wasn't invented until the 16th century. The complexity of the gears in the Antikythera were comparable to an 18th century Swiss, Swiss watchmaker. Yep. It was highly complex. 
Yes, this is one of those things that you occasionally see like a photograph of and it's like ancient computer. Yeah, it, well, and it, it is. Yeah. If, if you want to get really technical about it, that's absolutely what it's yep. for. If, if you're willing to kind of open your mind to what the word computer means. <laughs> sure, and we're going to have to later in this conversation about astronomy. <laughs> yep. But, uh, as, as something that computes things, absolutely, that's what it is. And yeah, it's, it's, for, it's for calculating this, the, the position of major stars and... Um, it's it's interesting because we have no idea how prevalent these things are or were I should say or um, who had access to them who was using them. I mean, this is the the era that we're talking about here, 150 CE. That's kind of the height of the Roman Empire. That's like the the golden age of of the Roman Empire. There's a, a quote from Edward Gibbon, the uh, the the Roman historian, who basically said that the second century in the Roman Empire was the greatest time for anyone to have ever been alive. Uh, he said that in the 18th century. So, <laughs> you know, I feel like we've surpassed it by now, but one hopes, um, you know, this is after an era of, of kind of um, uh, the, the Renaissance and, and sort of this this concept of the the Dark Ages, which we, we know is not terribly accurate anymore, but this idea that we, we fell from grace in some in, yeah, in it's, some it's senses a in broad in brush sort of. Oh yeah, it's 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 a it's a myth, but it, it's one that was considered to be true true at the time. So this is kind of a, a height of society or height of civilization type um, uh, invention, and it, it's fascinating. It's it's worth taking a look at the the pictures of it because it does look. Like something that was fake somehow. It, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing you would expect out of out of a society that we're used to seeing, you know, uh, bathhouse mosaics and things like yeah, that. Yeah, right. It's 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 really quite amazing. With but their again, astrophysics computer. <laughs> well, the, the the point here is that the height of mathematics in this society is astronomy. Yep. Sure, it's the one that explains everything in the universe. <laughs> it's a lofty ambition. Sure, that's it's it's understandable. Yep. It absolutely is. Um, but we just really never stopped looking at those stars. Around the same time, a, na a man named Claudius Ptolemy writes a book called the Megalae Syntaxis. It's also known as the Almagest. Mm -hmm. uh, Almagest is actually the Arabic name for it. Yep. And it's actually better known under the Arabic name for it uh, because we're getting real close to the fall of Greek and Roman civilization here and our focus is going to shift, shift somewhat. <laughs> and... Ptolemy was basically uh, took it upon himself to codify everything about the Greek system. He wrote down the first uh, star catalog that had more than a thousand stars in it, wow. uh, which was a big achievement at the time. It was, you know, it, it took on the um, the sort of the epicycle system of dealing with uh, retrograde planets. Mm -hmm. It added this concept of counter moving spheres because you have this issue of if spheres are rotating yeah how does it not affect the rotation of the spheres that are behind it or in front of it well wow. <laughs> and the answer is layers of spheres in between that rotate in the opposite direction okay that allow the spheres to stay in place sure again we're dealing with uh, uh an understanding of the universe that doesn't really involve the concept of vacuum no yeah this is one of those things that we'll explain better much later <laughs> <laughs> yep and it's it, it seems silly now but at the same time but they time, noticed it and that's something <laughs> well it's 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 important to it's important to understand because that was the best they could do and they were trying to explain their universe and and that was the best they com could come up with as a theory to 
explain the observations that they made. Right. And astronomy is always going to be those two sections, right? Observational and theoretical. You have to have theories that back up the things that you see, and you have to see the things that are predicted by your theories. Right. And as long as those two things mesh, you're good. Yeah. And they never completely mesh. And the tension between those two things is what drives innovation in astronomy. Yeah, and it gets tricky because it's one of these things that you can, like there are a lot of things astronomically that you can theorize that you wouldn't necessarily be able to observe for a, a huge amount of time. Correct. Like, even with our understanding now where like the universe is like 14 and a half billion years old or something along those lines, mm-hmm. like, you know, we can sort of see to where it started using advanced telescopes and kind of figuring out that that light that we're seeing is that old but mm-hmm. you know we're like we can theorize like models of supernova and stuff like that and, and sort of planetary orbits or whatever and until we actually see it we don't know if it's true Correct. and we might not ever we not might not see it for hundreds of years yep, if not true. much longer yeah no, no no absolutely and and but that tension is important right yeah you don't you don't improve the models you don't prove the models of course yeah if you you think you've got it all figured out and you've got nothing to to suggest otherwise (laughs) then why would you ever keep looking yeah exactly ptolemy's text basically codifies astronomy full stop for about a thousand years in europe yep it was comprehensive it was it it covered all of the concepts that were uh developed over the last several hundred years in greece and and later in in roman greece right it was uh, respectful of the people who came before, especially Plato, Aristotle, and provided enough of an explanation about the cosmos that people could be somewhat satisfied with the information in there. Yeah, it sounds comprehensive. It sounds very detailed. It wasn't perfect, no. but it was close enough. And then at the very grave risk of sounding cliche, the Roman Empire collapses and at least in the field of astronomy, Europe does in fact kind of stall out. Yeah. A little bit. Well, and, and this is what we're saying, right? They think that they found all the answers. There's a couple minor gaps that they feel are, if they even know that they're gaps at this point. Yeah. I think I think the best way to understand this uh, period in European astronomy is to understand the most influential work that comes out basically pre-Renaissance, uh, which is a 7th century text by uh, a monk uh, named Bede of Jero, which was called On the Reckoning of Time. And it was a highly detailed guide to calculating the date of Easter. I love that title. Because <laughs> it, it's very much like, okay, well, uh, you know, a thousand years later, we had, you know, <laughs> a brief history of time. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it's a little bit prescient. That is the kind of thing that astronomy was important for. Because one of the major themes of astronomy up until this point Mm -hmm. had been this mystic aspect of it. This tying of of the planets to divine aspects. This uh, understanding of the constellations in the context of uh, of myth. Okay. So is this then, this monk, Mm -hmm. uh, Bede? Yeah. He's now sort of taking this system that's put in place by the Greeks and trying to apply it to his own pantheon. So it's not as theoretical as he's trying to apply it to find out his own Christian calendar. Well, I mean, there is already the Julian calendar, which was developed by, by Julius Caesar. So just before we switch, from, uh, switch into the Common Era. Okay. 
which is being used by the church. It's fully functional. Mm -hmm. The point is more that the only uh, use, the only practical use uh, that people see for measuring and, and calculating from astronomical ob observations mm -hmm. is for accurately calculating the date of Easter. Okay. And the date of Easter is is actually a, a closely kept secret for several hundred years by the clergy. It's it's it, it gets a little bit complicated. I've talked about it briefly on the show before, but a very simplified version of it is that Easter is the first Sunday after the first new moon after oh sorry, full moon. First Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Right. Which is why it varies yeah. so wildly at this point. Yeah, we have it anywhere from like the middle of March to end of April. Well, like the earliest it can it can occur is like March twenty third. Yeah, and the latest can occur is like April twenty second or something like that. I don't. I'm. I'm. That's approximate. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. Uh, the calculation of Easter is a big, long, complicated thing, and and there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into it. But that's that's the simple version. Yeah. And and that's what it's important for because the you know the planets aren't seen as as gods and it's just kind of a curiosity in the sky and it doesn't matter. Yeah, all of that also requires that you know when the equinox is. <laughs> yes, and 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 the calculation of the equinox is also included in this text, yeah. right? That it's everything that you need to know to calculate Easter, which is comprehensive, but again, very specific. Mm -hmm. And the church at this point in time is it has a monopoly on education, and a lot of times when we talk about that. It comes off as a little bit insidious, and I don't think it necessarily needs to be. I think what's important to remember is that, number one, society had completely collapsed, and that there's a lot of knowledge that we would have lost completely if it wasn't for the church preserving it. Right. And that, number two, the church has a clear agenda behind it, yes, but that doesn't mean that it has an actively oppositional agenda behind it. Yeah. Just because they're interested in studying certain aspects of, of uh, philosophy and education doesn't mean that they're actively repressing other aspects. Sure. And that's, I think, one of the nuances about the church's role in education in the Middle Ages uh, that, that sometimes gets... It's self-propagating, right? It's steamrolled. Let's let's. Uh, I won't be delicate about it. it. It gets people get pretty angry about it, and and I understand why. But at the same time, it's not always necessarily fair. No, I, I don't think that it is, and I think that it's sort of self-propagating because the idea is that like the the people who are religious that are in the mm -hmm. church or in the clergy are the ones who are educated, and they're educating future people and yes. also educating them on church, and those people are also likely to be clergy, and yeah. the cycle continues. Well, and, and I mean, the truth of the matter is they, they actively worked to include thinkers like Plato yeah. into the theology of the church, which wasn't an easy thing to do, but they found ways, and it, it really ended up allowing them to create a, a sense of the universe that was... It explained everything really neatly, and and that worked really well for them. They really enjoyed that aspect of Greek astronomy. Yeah, sure, it's it's holistic. You can slot everything you want to into it, and it comes out with the answer that you were expecting. Yeah, there's this concept that I've talked about again a number of times called the great chain of being, mm -hmm. and it's this idea that every single thing in the universe has a hierarchy, and at the top is God, at the bottom is the devil, yeah. and everything fits in somewhere in between, and that doesn't just necessarily relate to things like shades of morality where better people are up higher and, and, and worse people are down lower. Right. It also refers to um, which animals are better than other ones. <laughs> uh, humans yeah. are at the top. They rule all of them. It's the best. Sure. Um, 
it also refers to physically the cosmos. The earth is at the bottom and then the, the heavens are, are outside of it in these perfect crystalline spheres that have epicycles and, 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 you know, reflects the perfection of God's creation. And it's all very uh, poetic and, and, and self-explanatory. All these things and, between man and God. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it, it really works well for, for these, um, uh, church intellectuals yeah absolutely and so they have that. no reason really to be advancing astronomy they found a version of astronomy that fits everything that they need it to fit yeah absolutely. it allows them to calculate easter and other feast days by extension and it allows them to explain the the nature of the heavens and the earth yeah and because you have all these models sort of fitting well together and they work for the purposes of the people who are coming up with them you tend to see these models sticking around for a long time exactly now knowledge of greek started to die out in uh what had been the western roman empire which uh further isolates everybody from these actual greek astronomers who had done the calculations themselves right scholars became restri uh, restricted to the latin texts which were often kind of abstracts of the original greek they would explain maybe the concepts but not necessarily the mathematics behind it got it and astronomy in a lot of ways turned into a very hypothetical um almost philosophical discipline i see um it, it became uh more about the metaphysics of it than necessarily the observation of it and and really we uh, despite the fact that we uh in the west were using the julian calendar which is a uh a, a, a solar calendar which is trickier to use than a lunar calendar right. other than that you know most of the knowledge that was was created by the greeks was was for the most part lost in europe this is one spot where the whole Dark Ages thing more or less applies. Not entirely, but better than some other areas. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have this drift from the science and education of the past-ish. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, church education was in a tradition that's known as uh, scholasticism, which is about... Have you have you ever heard of apologetics as a... As a I, th I think maybe. Yeah, the apologia. It's, it's, a, it's a discipline of... of academia where basically you find contradictions and try to find ways to resolve them okay. using yeah, the knowledge yeah. at hand and and it's and it's about trying to make a more comprehensive worldview and it's interesting it, it teaches some some interesting techniques but what can happen is basically the same mistake that plato made when he hired a mathematics or a mathematician to prove the worldview that he theorized yeah you come up with uh issues that you know you can solve <laughs> Well, you, you come up with pat explanations for yes. issues that you have and, and everything now makes sense and you're once again comfortable and happy. Yeah, yeah. No one can debate against you if you're debating against yourself. Uh, that's, that's, I think that's fair. <laughs> that, that might be oversimplified. <laughs> it, it, it is, uh, but it's also, I think, a fair critique of what was happening. Yeah. So the, uh, the entire continent of Europe has drifted into uh, the horrible dark ages. Um, Maybe you've heard of them. Life, life expect expectancy is 18 or something like that, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. We all ate dirt and... <laughs> it basically boils it down. No one knew anything. Literally everyone is syphilis. I think that's a great place to take a break. <laughs> Probably. And when we come back, we're going to try and do a little bit of CPR on the discipline of uh, astronomy and bring it back to life. Hooray. The fall of the Western Roman Empire, along with the medieval church's monopoly on education, their reverence for the great classical thinkers, and the good enough nature of Ptolemy's model of the universe, meant that astronomy stalled in Europe. 
Very little of this mattered to the rest of the world, though, and astronomy would continue to develop in a number of other regions. Next time, we'll begin by focusing on some of those developments, then move through the scientific revolution and into modern times. That episode will be up on April 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.